Hey everyone, I'm Britt and welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. My guest this week is Eric Fraunberger, PhD candidate in neuroscience at the University of Calgary. We chat about conducting research on rats, overcoming burnout, and managing time whether working in the lab or working from home. All right, well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you introduce yourself to everyone? Sure. So my name is Eric Fraunberger. I'm a PhD student in neuroscience. I'm in my final year, hopefully defending successfully on July 7th of this year. So maybe by the time this airs, you'll have defended. Yes, hopefully. Well, it depends on how long it takes to slice all the audio together, but hopefully, yes. Yeah, luckily it doesn't take that long, but uh, yeah, you'll have to update me so I can then update the podcast description. I'm sure they're all going to be on the edge of their seat waiting for that one. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about your research specifically. What do you do in neuroscience? My work, I started off as a master's student at U of C and I've carried on into a PhD since. And all of that work has been focused on pediatric mild traumatic brain injury. So some people may have used the term concussion, although they are distinct phenomena. Right. Focused on molecular mechanisms. So I use a rat model of brain injury, younger rats. And I look at the molecular mechanisms underpinning why, some of the changes in their brain and why you have some individuals that have long-term changes in their brain and some don't. So you can okay. go and talk to people who have had a concussion and you might get one person that says, I have you know, one concussion, totally fine. And they go back to living their life. And you get some people who have a concussion and they're completely out of commission for an extended period of time. So we're talking like one month or greater. Yeah, I know a few people, uh, I mean, they've all been adulthood concussions, uh, but some people seem to bounce back really quickly, and others seem to have impairments for years. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And that's what part of my research is trying to figure out is we, we just don't know enough about the pathophysiology of pediatric traumatic brain injury. There's a lot in adults, a lot in more severe ends of brain injury. So if you need to go to neurocritical care, for example, right. only look at the pediatric population and more in mild end of the spectrum of severity, then we really don't know what's going on. So my work is trying to piece a little bit of that together at a time using that rat model. Yeah. Yeah. Animal models are very useful. Yeah. Of uh, course, no one would ever argue. Well, I mean, maybe some would. I certainly wouldn't argue that rats are anywhere close to children, but it's it's as close as we're going to get at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, animal models are used a lot in all sorts of scientific uh, discoveries. Um, everything from, yeah, brain modeling to vaccines to addictions. Um, yeah, it's pretty much the closest thing that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but why rats and not a different animal? I know like at UFC, there's people doing, uh, working with mice and rabbits and all sorts of different things. So why does your group work with rats? It's a good question. So rats are actually very intelligent animals. Their behavior has been extremely well characterized. In fact, as I'm talking to you, I can see a paper on my desk that the title is analysis of the behavior of the laboratory rat. Oh yeah. <laughs> it is just being characterized to death. So whenever we do a brain injury on these rats, we have a set of tests that have been well validated over time. And we can see, did this brain injury in fact cause any changes to their behavior? Now, if you compare that to something like mice, mice are incredibly stupid animals. <laughs> compared to rats, rats definitely have their own personality. Anyone who works with rats will tell you the exact same thing. They're extremely yeah. intelligent and they're actually closer to humans in terms of their ability to, they're used in a lot of toxicology studies, for example. 
um, a lot of their, their developmental time points are not the same as humans. People have tried to draw that, those comparisons, but of course you're never going to get an accurate comparison there. Right. But they're definitely getting closer than, um, in terms of mice, especially with behavior. So I'm going to follow this rat trajectory a little bit. Um, oh. So one of my favorite facts about Alberta, um, I don't, are you originally from Alberta, Eric? No, I'm from Ontario. Okay. So you may not, you probably do know this working with rats, but rat free, uh, yeah. Alberta is rat free. Um, and we actually have rat border patrol officers. Uh, we don't have to worry so much about the mountains and then coming over from BC, but we do have rat border patrol officers and people cannot have rats as pets and all these sorts of rules and regulations in Alberta to maintain rat being rat free. So how do you get around that? And how are you allowed to use rats in the lab? Well, I personally don't get around it myself. There's the university would have a permit from the government. The right, exact yeah. minister, the exact ministry, the exact, all of that is above my head and above my pay grade. But I know that the university gets a special permit from the government that says you can have animal rats or mice or whatever animals you need, especially since we're a veterinary school as well. Right. You see that we have that permit for all those kinds of animals. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I've heard that there's like particular protocols you have to follow because you're working with rats. Like um, someone was telling me, and this may or may not be true, they may have just been feeding into my rat, uh, <laughs> my, my rat um, interest with Alberta being rat free, but they're not so concerned. Like if a mouse gets out, it's not, it's not a huge thing. Um, but that there's, you have to go through certain measures to make sure like rats never get out or, or things like that. Is that true? So in terms of measures that we have to take as researchers when we go down to the animal house, so in my case, I work at the Foothills Hospital campus. Right. So when you go downstairs, there's key card locks to get into the animal facility. And then your lab would get a physical key to unlock the door to get into a pressurized room where the animals are stored. Right. But that'd be the same for every animal, right? Essentially. Yeah. yeah okay. So it'd be very hard for them to escape because yeah. you, would have to, you would have to really really not pay attention and since you count your animals you need to know the exact number that there are to plan all your experiments if you're missing one you wouldn't just go oh it's just one i probably miscounted you would go back and you would recount them to make right. sure that they get out and i mean from a biological point of view if one got out not a big deal but now if you have two and then they have litters of 12 animals you know yeah <laughs> there, right the problem just exponentially explodes so yeah. And I know we do have really strict protocols for animal welfare and animal ethics and all of that sort of thing. So I imagine it's the same care that's taken really with any animal. Um, and someone was probably just teasing me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, we definitely make sure the animals don't get out. And there are so many ethical procedures that we follow. Yeah. To make sure the animals are treated well. And I often tell people when they hear that I do animal work, some of them are visibly... I don't know, I don't know if I can think of a strong enough word, disgusted, re like just repulsed <laughs> at the idea of doing animal work. And I say to them, look, it's not like any of us get some kind of sick enjoyment out of it. That's no, not no. I found that since I started doing work with animals, I actually appreciate them a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been listening a lot to another podcast done by grad students um, on epidemiology. And they talk a lot about the role that animals have paid, played in certain... Uh, discoveries and outcomes, particularly if we look at vaccine development or uh, yeah, animal models of brain development on all, all these sorts of things. Like we would not be where we are as a society scientifically if it wasn't for animal models. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so tell me more about what it's like working in a lab type environment. So in my research, I don't have a lab. Um, I work very much isolated. So how many people do you typically work with on a project? What's it like working in a lab? That sort of stuff. So what was interesting is when I first came to U of C, the supervisor I interviewed with, his name is Dr. Michael Esser. He's a neurocritical care physician at the Children's Hospital. And he also has myself and a few other students doing basic science work. Right. And when I first interviewed with him, you know, he, he was the first supervisor to actually ask me what I wanted to research. So trying to open up, broaden the horizons. So it wasn't just about here's your project that you're going to do for the next few years. He asked what I actually wanted to do. Nice. And so from there, you know, I got introduced to my co-supervisor um, after I discussed it initially trying to find some other or broaden my horizons and learn more about other aspects of science. I got matched with my co-supervisor, Dr. Timothy Shutt, who's a mitochondria researcher at the University of Calgary. And so going from talking to one supervisor, now getting two supervisors, my lab size just doubled. So right. my supervisor, Michael, uh, he had postdocs, lab techs, whole bunch of people when I started. And then uh, Tim had myself and another grad student. And then from there, over the years, that those numbers fluctuated. And now, how many people are in the lab now? Now I would say there's it's gone anywhere from six to ten different people that I've had the pleasure of working with. Oh, wow, yeah. But in, in my lab setting, typically what's happened is everyone's got their own project. Right. So you might get some collaboration if someone's an expert in a certain technique and they're trying to answer a question that someone else might have and they can collaborate on a project. But a lot of the time we have our own individual projects that we work on. Okay. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I find it, yeah, I find the differences in disciplines and the differences then between like graduate student experiences really fascinating because then like, for example, in engineering, you'll have students who are all kind of collaborating on a certain aspect of a grant and they'll each kind of have a piece that then becomes their dissertation. Um, mm. And then, yeah, you have like in education, we very much have our own projects that we work on. Um, and pretty much we devise those projects from start to finish. Well, if you're talking about a dissertation, I know that, I don't know if it's the same in education. We can do a manuscript-based thesis in science. Is it the same with with education? Yeah, it's be, uh, just starting to become more popular. And in fact, that's what I've chosen to do. I did a traditional master's thesis. So I've decided to do the manuscript based for my PhD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, I chose because trying to publish out of my master's was a huge challenge. And it took me like two and a half years to do it. In fact, it was like just published. <laughs> I, and uh, so I decided to, well, if we, I start in journal article format, that's going to be a lot easier to then publish those than having to rewrite or reformat. Um, whereas, yeah, and I hear in like other disciplines, that's very much the norm, uh, like in engineering, um, that seems to be very much the norm that you have two or three papers that become your dissertation. Yeah, I know some people, they do a traditional, some people do a completely manuscript based. Yeah. Some people actually do a hybrid. So I'm in the middle there. I'm doing a hybrid because some of my work was published, but because of COVID, my last rounds of experiments were postponed indefinitely. Right. So I'm able to finish off that final chapter, but I have enough data to write the thesis and move on. Yeah. So just write it up, move on, and maybe one yeah. day you'll be able to publish it. Yeah. Yeah. One day. Yes. Hopefully. And I completely empathize with that whole difficulty in publishing during the master's. I had the same difficulty when I was in starting my master's degree before I transitioned to a PhD, 
I think what I'm going to share at my thesis defense in the next couple of weeks is that it was really, that was a learning experience. That was the time where you come in there. I had some research training beforehand, but didn't really know all the techniques needed to do the work in the lab. And so having to spend that time learning techniques, even to get a paper published out of that did take a couple of years after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. After you learn all the techniques. And then of course there's the writing, which is the whole other mess that you have to go through and learn how to write. And it, it, once you get that down pat, then you can publish a paper. And so people who publish in their masters, I think are just, they are, they must, they're way beyond what I was able to do at that point too. Yeah. I'm always amazed or people, I think more and more, it's also becoming common that people are publishing out of their undergrad or publishing during their undergrad. Yeah. Typically not as, as first author, but because they're doing one of these research uh, summers or things like that. Um, and I find it really interesting because I, I even did some of my undergrad work at U of C and that was never really suggested. Like I even did an honors thesis and it was never suggested, oh, you should publish this. Like the most I got to was like, oh, you should do the undergrad research fair and you should present at our symposium. Mm-hmm. And that was it. There was nothing of like, oh, you should spend a summer doing research with someone or you should publish. Um, whereas now what I see people entering a master's with seems to be like really incredible because they're publishing they're doing all these sorts of things and I'm I'm wondering if that's becoming the norm or if I if there's just people who are are lucky in a sense that they they get connected with someone who's in that mentorship mindset and of helping guide them through these different um opportunities yeah, I definitely think there's an element of luck in there too. And the, the mentorship's a good point. I hadn't considered that. When I say luck, I mean from the, the timing point of view. So if mm-hmm. I'm an undergraduate student and I show up in a lab and that lab is a larger, more well-established lab and you have multiple postdocs, multiple techs, multiple grad students, chances are if you stick there with them long enough, you will get a publication with your name on it. Yeah, that's so true. The project yeah. is at that stage where you come in and you do a key experiment or you add some key insight and boom, you're in. Whereas if you're a student, and this can go for any any field, right? Not just science. If you're a student, you go into another lab and it might be a brand new lab. So for example, my co-supervisor had, I think it was two of us in the lab when we first started and maybe a tech and a postdoc, that was it. And so when you go to a lab that's just starting, chances are you're not going to get a paper in the next six months. So it's going to take you at least a year, maybe longer to get to get the data and then publish it or to you know, have your novel insights, draft them up in a novel way and publish them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, you're right about that timing there too. And often I see like in the social sciences, humanities, undergrads come in to do research and they maybe are just doing a lit review and that might contribute to a larger project, um, but they're not going to see that for a while. Like if it does, then that paper might get published in a year or two um, and they, well, then would get their name on it, but it'd be a while later. Um, and I think like for us, there's a good mix between like sole authoring and uh, group authoring, whereas in the sciences, I know it's it's like publishing by yourself is almost suspect because <laughs> they're like, yeah, you didn't really do it by yourself. No, if you have your own name on there, I can guarantee you if I tried to publish anything with my name only, I would, I'd be in violation of all kinds of contracts and things I've signed with the university because my supervisor has provided me with funding and so is the university. And so if I don't have their name on it and they're mentoring me, it's a big professional no-no. 
right? Yeah. Whereas like, <clears throat> even if like my supervisors very much mentors me and, and she's looked over some of my publications, but uh, very much I, like helping to edit doesn't constitute co-authorship in our discipline. Um, it very much has to be a contribution. And um, like, there's just not a lot of stuff I write is, is very much by myself. Um, and then I've worked with other people on other things, but most of my dissertation work or even my thesis work was published by myself or will be published by myself. So, wow. Yeah. 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 And I would say like in, in education, they're very much looking for both. Like if you have a CV of all co-authorships or a CV of all sole authorships, like neither looks great. <laughs> like yeah. they really do want a mix. Uh, cause they wanted to see that, okay, you can, you can work on your own and you can work with others. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me like, what has been for you the biggest challenge that you've experienced, whether it was during your master's or during your PhD? Big, the biggest challenge? Yeah. Oh, gosh. During my master's, I would say the biggest challenge for me was actually time management going in. Mm. Because when I did my master's, I felt the need to be in the lab all the time and do things all the time. And if I wasn't yeah. in the lab doing work, I was somehow falling behind or not being a good enough grad student, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I hear that a lot um, and from every discipline. Uh, and even every once in a while, you'll see someone else pop up on Twitter saying basically that exact same thing. And um, like, how do you create a weekend or how do you step away from the lab and feel confident stepping away? Um, so how did you overcome that? Well, it was more of a crash and burn type scenario, unfortunately, on my end. Oh, no. Yeah. So I, when did I start? I started in September 2015 and I spent that year doing courses, learning new techniques and going through experiments. And I think by the following Christmas, so this must have been December 2016, I was burnt out. I didn't yeah. even want to continue. It was, it was awful. Like the research was, the research was progressing fine. That was not the problem. It was, well, that's all I had going, right? I didn't really, I moved from out of province. Yeah. Right. So in terms of making new friends, I mean, you get to meet people around the labs and all that, but it's, it's not the same as going out and doing things and taking breaks. And like you said, taking a weekend or making a weekend. Yeah. Right. It just seemed like, what's the point, right? So I published a couple of papers in the master's or a paper in a master's and, you know, I, but like that, that just didn't seem enough at that point because I was burnt out yeah and that that burnout could be really hard to come back from I know I experienced it a little bit um but it was more so after after my first two years of PhD when I'd also been president of our GSA for uh -huh. two years and um definitely I was ready ready for a good break and I I probably took I mean, I was working on my candidacy, but I took uh, probably a month and a half where I didn't do anything other than um, my PhD and then a lot of nothing. <laughs> um, and that was really good. And now I find, of course, I've gotten back into a situation where I'm, I'm quite busy again and I've taken on other projects and, and volunteering and, and doing a podcast and all these other sorts of things. Um, it's, it's nice to have that balance, right? So you're not just strictly doing your thesis work or your research or whatever it is that you're doing as a grad student. You can step outside and whether you connect what you're doing, you're volunteering or whatever to your work, or if you do it, it's something that's separate, but parallel, you know, to what you're doing that that's, that's nice. Yeah. So how did you make sure that like 
once you had like realized what the problem was and um and made a made a conscious effort to to fix it what how what did you then do to make sure that you didn't fall back into that pattern and and didn't experience burnout again well i had conversations with my supervisors so that was another major learning point that i think a lot of grad students learn in their first year at least from what i've observed in science i don't know how it is outside of science but it's a communication piece yeah You're learning how to have that conversation with the supervisor and you know they're they're incentivized to publish, right? Their entire existence at that institution rests on their ability to publish papers and then get more grants and so on and so forth. And it's their own career, right? As well as your own too, but there, there is, they have that incentive as well. And so learning to have that conversation with the supervisor, I had my, that conversation with my supervisor, it was a big turning point, just explaining that all I did was focus on this work and they had no idea, right? Because they, they're not, they're watching my life every minute. And so after explaining that to them, you know, I'm having this issue, I'd like to take some time off. They said, okay, go take some time off, no problem. Oh, that's and great. Open and, oh, just being open and honest, yeah. So they were, they were open and honest about taking some time off and just decompressing, I think was the word that they used. Mm -hmm. and then coming back fresh after that and they've used that analogy since especially when it comes to writing yeah so you're never gonna be able you can hammer out 10 pages in a day if you really really just put your nose to the grindstone but you're not gonna be able to do that every day there's gonna be an upper limit of productivity where you're gonna hit a wall and you're not gonna be able to do any more and that's when you need to step away so i think coming out of that one of the biggest things that i learned was it's not a bad thing to step away from the work for even a day to do something else you enjoy, to you know, go hang out with your friends, or even if, if you really love the research, just do a different project, something to switch your mind off of what you yeah. were about before. Yeah, I recently read a really good book called Deep Work, and it's written by a, I think a mathematics professor, uh, but he talks exactly about that, how um, create time blocks, so you do have the times where you're focused, and then you'll produce great work. But then it's equally as important to take time to step away and do things like go for walks and be with friends and family. And uh, you're actually going to be a lot more productive if you are focused for three hours than if you're unfocused for 10. And sometimes in academia, we really feel like it's the hours that we put in that matter when it's actually not, it's the, the product. And that's one of the things I actually really like about academia is that, I mean, I really like having a flexible work schedule. I've never been very good at routine. And so I like having a day that looks different every day and being able to just put in a few hours, but know that, hey, I was at my most productive and I've really done my best and now I can go enjoy other things. And then in that other things, um, like I now have like uh, that fast app on my phone where I can like take a note really quick because something might pop in my mind, like I'll be uh, like even just making dinner or going for our, for a walk. And then I'll be like, oh, I need to, this is the next research question I need to ask, or this is the next, um, the next step I need to take. Yeah, no, I completely empathize with that. Yeah, definitely. Even just going out for a walk, something that simple can jog your memory and you'll, it's, I think there was a, oh I, I, I've heard stories of people, you know, where like people would have revelations in the bathtub. Yeah, <laughs> whether you're doing something, I don't know if that's true or just apocryphal or, or what the story is with that. But there is some truth to that. When you step away, you definitely can have some novel insights. Maybe you see something that it's like, oh, that definitely applies to what I was trying to solve before. 
And what you said about the, the hours piece made me think of an article in The Economist I read a while back now. And it said one of the keys to productivity is just looking productive. So it's not even yeah. being productive. <laughs> it, it was just so absurd. And I don't know if it was satire or, or what. I might not get the sophisticated British humor of The Economist, but <laughs> it just made me think, you know, you can sit at your desk and I, we've seen this all the time. And anyone who says this isn't true is, is lying. You can sit in the lab or at a bench or in, a, in an office and some, you see someone there for 12 hours. There is no way you are there for 12 hours and you are consistently doing work for 12 hours, at least not several days in a row. That's impossible. Yeah, no, no. And I, I think you make such a good point there too, where often what's prioritized or what's rewarded is that time in the chair or that time in front of the computer. And we don't actually look at the product. And I, for a short time, I worked in a workspace where um, very much the hours in the office was prioritized and the hours in the office was what was tracked and monitored. And like, if someone came in 10 minutes late, it was like, oh, guess you couldn't make it in on time again. And like really bad jokes about it. But because there was this culture of it matters that you're here from nine to five. And so that was really interesting to me because it just felt like, okay, well, you don't value the person. You don't value their work. Like, what are you actually valuing here? And I realized very quickly, like that was not the type of workplace I wanted to be in. It sounds like you're working in some kind. Was this in Canada or a totalitarian state? <laughs> this was in Canada. <laughs> ah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, and it, it was it was really interesting because yeah, it did feel like oh, like where where am I? What am I doing? But I think um, we there was some conversation happening in the work world about this before even the pandemic about. I mean, uh, who, I think it was one of the Dragon's Den guys had an article or something I saw on LinkedIn that was like, I don't care when and where you work, just get the work done. And it was kind of like, it was badly written because it was like, if you work on vacation, that's great, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mm, but then the point of the article is like, I don't care where and I don't care when, I just care that the work gets done. And uh, to me, like, I think that's where we need to get to, particularly now being in a pandemic where everyone's having to work at home and has all of these different uh, constraints on their time, no longer can people sit in front of a screen for three hours and have a meeting the way they used to sit in a room for three hours and have a meeting. And so we really need to rethink, yeah, what, do, what does productivity look like and, and should it look the same for everyone? Yeah, I, I had a, at one of my lab meetings recently, I was talking to a master's student in my lab and we had a very similar conversation and we agreed that since now we have to work from home because of the pandemic, right? You're going to have to really adjust what you think productivity looks like. Yeah. And I've had this conversation with every single person that I know in science and we've all agreed that productivity has just been shot for most of us. Like the yeah. fact that you could go to the lab for eight hours or longer if you're doing experiments that take several days and they require eight to 10 hours of your attention per day, yeah, that, that's an easy way to explain why that took you that long, right? Or in the meantime, you can be reading some papers or you could be writing something on the computer while those are running. Yeah. Right? But now you're sitting at home in front of a computer. You don't have those eight to 10 hours. And so now going from having things to do for eight to 10 hours a day, and now you're sitting at home going, okay, well, if you try and sit in front of a computer for eight to 10 hours, you are going to lose your mind. 
Yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the end of that conversation was, well, think about it, you know, maximum, I would say for me, at least, I've been unable to focus for more than five hours. Five hours is like pushing me sitting at home in front of a computer. I say three yeah. is more average. Yeah. And I think it's it, like, abysmal, right? It sounds abysmal because you're, you're looking at this from, okay, let's say I get to the lab, but we can say nine to five, but it's never in grad students are nine to five, but let's say they are for this example. Yeah. Right. Three hours is nine till noon. Right, which seems like no time at all. You have accomplished, you, you must feel like you've accomplished nothing because then afternoon your your brain is, is tired, you're tired, you're looking around going, okay, what do I do now? And it's only noon. And all you can think about in your head and it's just replaying is, well, what am I missing? What could I be doing? Could I be writing a review paper? Could I be reading some other articles? Could I be networking? Could I be doing this, this, this and that? Yeah, and I think what's interesting though too is that we think we're productive from nine to five, but we're really not. And like if um, you look at like a typical office worker, sure, they're in the office nine to five, but there's time going between meetings, there's time in meetings, there's chit chat before and after meetings, there's chit chat around the co around the coffee maker or the water cooler, and there's. Uh, Answer, like answering email takes up three hours alone. <laughs> so, um, well, like especially when you're in those more administrative roles, right? Like yourself yeah. with the GSA or myself with HBITO. Yeah. Yeah. So, how productive we actually are, even in normal circumstances, I think we overestimate. And I've been tracking hours for a very long time because I've had various positions that require me to report hours. And there's been times where I felt really like frustrated with myself because I'm like I only worked for three hours today like how is this even possible I was busy all day and I only have three like billable hours basically uh to account for it and what I realized was that yeah it's all this time going between meetings and the chit chat before and after meetings I have to say I miss the chit chat before and after meetings now it's like you open zoom and you get going right away and then someone closes zoom right away and you're like oh okay I guess we're done <laughs> Yeah, right. Or a meeting was ended by host and you're saying, bye, and you're in the middle of your goodbye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been cut off at, like, or a meeting has been cut off. I'm not always the one talking. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, a meeting has been kind of cut off because the person who is the host, uh, yeah, it, it's really awkward. Um, but yeah, there's all this like extra fluff time in a sense that we consider part of our workday uh, that doesn't actually count to anything. I mean, it's, it's good for our well-being. It's good for our social connections. It's good for our mental health to have that in between time and those, that social connection. Um, small talk. We're not as productive as we think we are. Yeah. It's the small talk. And that's, I think they've probably done studies on this where they've shown that the small talk is almost required to form any kind of social connection and to really have productivity occur in a meeting. And I think when I look at Zoom, where you can, you know, the Zoom settings, you can tick all kinds of boxes for. One of them is um, you can allow people in the room before the host arrives. Yeah. So, for example, if my supervisor hosts a lab meeting and they tick that box, then all of us can show up maybe like 10, 10, 5, 10 minutes early. And then we'll all sit there and we'll just chit chat on Zoom before he arrives. Right. I think that's yeah. a huge, huge improvement over we watch a window and there's an hourglass just sitting there waiting for the room to open up for the supervisor to arrive and then we're all thrusted into this meeting where we have <laughs> we have no introductions we're just right into it yeah i've noticed like i tried to arrive five minutes early even to zoom meetings and i hate it when they've said it that you can't arrive before them because you don't get that chit chat and you don't get that 
sense of connection as people come into the room um, that you normally would have. And I think, yeah, that's a great tip. Like everyone should just allow that. Like there's really no harm in allowing that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are your like time management tricks now? I know you're kind of like on the like decompression stage, uh, but as you're sitting at home frantically running up your dissertation, uh, what, how did you manage your time and, and any tips and tricks that you found useful? So if my supervisor ever listened to this, which would be, I think, hilarious if they did. <laughs> I'm the going to send it to them. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can send it to them with the, the caveat that, yes, Eric was home nine to five, frantically working on his thesis every day for the last three months. It's been yeah. about three months with COVID, right, March? Yeah, it's been about yeah, three, months. three months. Yeah, yep. so it's literally been nine to five every day, frantically working on his thesis. Okay, and then you can end the, the clip there. Yeah. <laughs> and now this is the part where they're no longer listening. And, you know, they, they all get it. We're all, we all get it. This is not a secret for anyone anymore. Yeah. No, I, time management tricks. That's a good question. Um, well, I, I think part of it was finding other things that I enjoyed. So for example, um, well, one is my wife, now wife at the time when I was doing my master's and PhD, girlfriend and fiance. But that really takes away time from the lab because you have to cultivate a relationship with another human being, which isn't just about showing up for 20 minutes and how was your day and then going away, right? Yes. I know you know that too. I do completely understand that. I'm laughing because, wow, so true, yep. Yep, so that was almost like a, no, don't get me wrong, I, and she may never listen to this, I didn't go and find my wife just so I could get out of the lab and just as a reason <laughs> not to do this. <laughs> Definitely not true. But uh, it, I think having a significant other or someone else that you can talk to in an intimate way like that, that is something that will take you away from the lab and really give you a different perspective on what you're doing. Yeah, I think, well, my husband will listen to this because he does the audio producing. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's been like, we were married before I started grad school and there was quite a transition there for us as a couple from us both being teachers to then him working in uh, social services and then in um, uh, like outdoor stuff and where he really doesn't work full time just because of the, the nature of, of the work. Um, like he'll, his shifts are typically like maybe six hours a day instead of the eight. Um, and then whereas I'm, was at a set, at a point in time working 10 to 12 hours a day and it became very clear that this is not sustainable so he then started helping out more around the house and then I also started making a commitment to end my day at certain times and he pulls me out to the mountains which is excellent and makes me try new things like this podcast <laughs> uh, and really having that other person in your home who says like hey get away from the computer hey like get off your phone hey like let's go do things has been actually yeah very helpful oh it's that's my wife to a t yeah the, the way you just described your husband is my wife basically that's he is great. the one who mountains are her happy place she loves yeah. the mountains and coming from ontario we don't have mountains over there for those of you that have never been out east <laughs> there are no mountains yeah, no. in ontario so coming here you know, she's constantly saying, let's go to the mountains. Let's take a, take a Saturday, Sunday off. And now I've met all kinds of friends since moving to Calgary where mountains are like a central place where they go and do activities. Yep. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, joining them has just been an amazing time. Absolutely amazing. Doing things that I never would have done in Ontario, right? Like hiking or summiting a mountain. Right. Like oh, yeah. I did that the first time last weekend. Oh, awesome. Which like, one did you do? Oh gosh. We went up Raspberry Ridge to an old fire lookout. 
Oh, okay. I haven't done I that say, one. I say we because the friends that I was with were extremely experienced hikers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I made it to the helipad at the top and I, you know, I could see stars in the distance coming for me, but regardless. <laughs> um, yeah, I think another time management trick for me was, and <laughs> this is going to sound silly, I seemed to be unable to say the word no when people yeah. ask. And for some reason, Britt, I get the feeling that you also lacked the ability or lacked the ability to say no at some point during grad school. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a muscle that I'm constantly having to exercise and strengthen. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, and even now it, it's hard and people are like, oh, I want you, I want you to collaborate with me on this or let's do this other new side project. And you're like, yes, I'm so passionate about it. And then you realize that there are in fact only 24 hours in a day where your husband, wife, significant other, whoever takes up probably at least half of that. So yeah. <laughs> where sleep comes in, we have, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but the math is, is going to work out one day. But I think for me, it was about getting out in the community and volunteering. So for example, I do brain injury research. Mm -hmm. And so I started volunteering with a rehabilitation facility called ARBI, Association for the Rehabilitation of the Brain Injured. So that got me out once a week to do volunteer work. That's awesome. And that was something that was semi-connected to my work because I was studying the brain. And I found a lot of other UFC students went there and it's an amazing community. And so that getting me out there from the lab, even just that, I think, what was it? Three hours a week was already something else I could put to my schedule where, okay, Thursday mornings, I'm not going to be in because I'm volunteering. Yeah. And getting involved more with uh, the GSA, the HBITO, just stacking more on my plate forced me to time manage. And I feel yeah. like that's, for me at least, without those commitments or that kind of, I don't want to say pressure, but, um, you know, you just say commitments. I wouldn't have the incentive to have to budget the time because if I just had nothing to do in a day, right, I would have, you know, I could just sit and, and do nothing and not really have any goal. And that for me would drive me nuts. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that's so true. You then end up also having to be more effective with the time that you do have in the lab or do have to write because yeah. you only have so many hours. Like, yeah, I remember in my master's when I was, I was involved, but not, not to the level that I am now. Um, I would be like, oh, I have all day to read like the three papers I need to read for class. And so inevitably it takes all day, right? And then I was like, okay, I have an hour to read this paper for class. And now actually I know, yeah, I can read a paper and annotate it and think about it in an hour. And so just giving yourself more of those time boundaries I found has been very helpful. Yeah. So it was almost like the paradoxical effect of you took more on. So it was forcing you to budget your time. Yeah. And you have to be, you have to be way more effective with that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And how did that shift, I guess, then like with the last three months being at home and writing your dissertation at home, um, you're probably not going out to volunteer and uh, like campus is closed. And so did you find that you had to like rethink how you were doing your time management or did you fall into a pattern easily? I would say it was a, it's been a roller coaster, I think is the best way I can describe it. It was never, it was, the transition was tough. I, at least yeah. I found it tough going from, okay, you wake up and you're usually in the lab at the same time every day. And you're there for usually the same, roughly the same amount of time every day. Cause you either have experiments to do or, or writing or reading or something. You do that all in the lab. And now you wake up and you walk two feet from your bed and you end up at your desk it's just the whole mentality is not the same. And I've talked to a lot of other people about this too. And we all feel very similar in that 
home is not the place where we usually do our work. Right. And a lot of us would rather go to a coffee shop. I, I personally enjoy doing that. Like going out, if I have to be reading or writing, I don't like sitting at my bench because right? yeah. there's distractions. People will yeah. come by and they want to talk and that's fine, but that's not a conducive environment for reading or writing. So you go to a coffee shop. But now the closest thing to a coffee shop is getting a coffee and then sitting at your desk. So it's your own personal coffee shop. So that, that, that's been a tough transition. And I found what helped was establishing a routine early on. Yeah. And of course, I think part of the tough bit of it was getting my wife on the same routine too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because she, as a teacher, she was teaching online. So she had to be in front of the computer at, I think for her, it was between 8.30 and 9 o'clock every morning. Right. And she's actually going back to the school to set up everything for the following year. Like yeah. moving and all of that right now. And so having us both on the same schedule, so waking up at the same time and knowing, okay, now I'm going to have breakfast, I'm going to make a coffee, I'm going to you know, read the news or whatever it is, right, in the morning. But then also having a time to stop. And I think you mentioned that before. Yeah. So not dragging it out for 10 hours, right? Because you can easily drain time away staring at a computer until 10 o'clock at night. You've done nothing. And yeah. then you feel crap because you procrastinated, right? Whereas setting a cutoff and saying, well, we're going to stop at 3 o'clock today. And then after three o'clock or whatever time you set, then, you know, you're going to go do something else that you enjoy for the rest of the day and not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I worked a fair bit from home anyway, uh, probably about like 50% on campus and 50% at home. But I really do miss the ability to change scenery, like being able to then go to the library at school and work there or yeah, the coffee shops, like I've written a lot of papers in the Starbucks uh, yeah. because it, it does get you away from the distractions. Um, like at home, we, we have a cat, uh, he could be distracting. Uh, but then like, yeah, my husband would be like, not realizing I'm in the middle of something and, and want something. Yep. Or even just a question of like, what do you want for lunch? And it's like, I'm being disrupted. Um, so yeah, having that, having that change of scenery, uh, I miss that for sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a it's been interesting that's for sure I'll say that much it's been interesting I know I count myself very fortunate though because I was at the tail end of the work so yeah. although I had experiments planned I had everything planned out for the next like six months yeah March I I was at the tail end so I had enough and these were just experiments to try and get another paper and to finish the final chapter of the thesis so I thankfully I had enough to write up and move on from my PhD. But I know some of my friends, they're, they're like second year PhD. They're in the, the middle of all their big experiments for their thesis. And now that's all come to a screeching halt. Yeah, that's really tough. No, I was lucky as well. I was just, uh, um, we cl campus closed in mid-March and I was set to wrap up data collection end of April. So um, I was able to pivot to online focus groups and like uh, take some of the focus groups and turn into like surveys instead. Um, so that was lucky. Whereas, yeah, now I know people who are doing their candidacy and they're, they don't know when they're gonna be able to even collect data because they're working with people and they want to do things other than focus groups and interviews. And it's, it's hard to, to do those virtually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So my last question for you. Um, have you picked up any uh, pandemic hobbies? <laughs> uh, <laughs> pandemic hobbies. Any new skills you developed while uh, being at home? Actually, what's funny is since I've been focusing most of my energy on my thesis, I haven't picked up any hobbies. But 
my wife has actually tried to pick up a few things. She's tried to pick up uh, crocheting. Oh, yeah. She's crocheted flasks on the internet, and now she is determined to make these flasks. Huh. And uh, tried to learn the guitar and all kinds of things. For me, honestly, it's, I haven't picked up any new hobbies, unfortunately. I'm quite boring, I guess, during the pandemic. You know, I, I, I remember reading online, you know, people who were saying, oh, this is like your time for self-improvement. Oh, yeah, no. it's, it's almost like a, a, a cult of self-improvement. You know, like you're at home, you have all of this time. What are you doing with yourself, man? You should be reading new books. You should be out, you know, uh, I don't know what the hell people should be doing. Like they'll pick something and they'll say you should be making, becoming a carpenter or making sourdough bread. Or, that seems to you know, be uh, a big trend. <laughs> <laughs> I will say the only thing that I, now that I, I say that, I have tried so many new recipes. I do enjoy cooking quite a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the cook in the house, which is fine. I have readily adopted that, and I will continue that for as long as I live. But yeah, awesome. trying new recipes and learning how to do different techniques cooking has been very, very interesting. But yeah, I, I don't think the self-improvement, I think that's all just over the top. Oh yeah, I remember seeing that tweet and it was, yeah, it was something like, if you don't come out of this with like XXX and X, you didn't lack um, time, you lacked motivation or something like that. And the backlash was impressive. Uh, and yeah. then even I saw like a personal trainer that I follow um, made a comment on, yeah, if people don't come out of this with hard bodies, it's it's not that you lack time, it's that you lacked discipline. And I was just like, wow, you really have no clue, like really have no clue about what is happening in the world and how things shutting down and normal routines coming to an end affect mental health and affect productivity and affect all those things. Like now, I mean, if people find solace in being productive or they find um, hobbies as a way of, of taking care of themselves and a distraction to what's going on. I think that's also a big thing. Um, if you have to feed your sourdough starter every day, like there's a routine and there's some normalcy, right? I think that's a big part of it. Um, so oh yeah, I, I, I ended up picking up uh, our old keyboard piano from my parents' house. So I uh, tried to learn piano again. And uh, yeah, I picked up my guitar a bit more than normal, but I crocheted and knitted before this all happened. So just continuing with that, but yeah. But definitely not trying to be like, oh, now's the time to be productive. It's more just like, well, can't do anything else. <laughs> yeah, I know that I've looked at, I've seen people doing online courses too. So like yeah. Yeah, massively open online courses. Yeah. And that's, that's great. You know, the fact that you can learn how to code or if you have, you know, something else that you'd want to learn. I think that's great that that's available. But I think compelling people or telling people you're undisciplined or unmotivated or anything like that is a gross generalization and is definitely not helpful because if that was the case, if that's the metric we're going to use, I am the most undisciplined and unmotivated individual on this earth, I think, during <laughs> the pandemic. And I'm very glad we're doing this on audio for that exact reason and no video. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, no, I haven't, like I said, I haven't picked up too many hobbies. I think I've just improved my cooking skills a little bit and Honestly, just tried to to push through because I found this last three months tough with the thesis and yeah, just trying to finish. You can see yeah. that light at the end of the tunnel and it's tough to think and want to do anything else except finish. Just get it done and put all your work together in a, in a nice package and, and end on a high note. Yeah, I feel like I'm in that stage right now where I really want to just write 
and yeah. and push that forward but i'm in the data analysis phase so i really have to spend a lot of time just with the data mm-hmm. and it, it can be really tiring and i just want to write so but you have to go through all the steps yeah for sure and i think that one thing that i've taken away from talking to other grad students about this with the pandemic and the productivity is don't feel like you need to be productive every second of the day yeah so feel like if you wake up like i've had days where i'll wake up and sure i i send in my thesis a couple of days ago to my committee which you know i can't wait to see how much red there's going to be on those pages but you know, spending the last three months, there's no way I was productive every single day. If there were days I woke up, I had zero motivation. I could oh, yeah. stare at my thesis. I could just be staring at the same paragraph for an hour. And at that point, I realized that's it. I'm just going to shut it off and the, the day is done. Yeah. And move on, do something else, but then resolve to come back the following day and say, if I take this day now, I'm now I can go back. It will still be there tomorrow. Yep. Yeah, that's what you're allowing yourself and allowing allowing that time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I've learned a lot about uh, rat research and (laughs) time management and uh, yeah, managing everything that comes along with doing a PhD. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Yeah. And uh, best of luck at your defense that's coming up. I'm sure you will pass with flying colors. Yeah. Thank you, Britt. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, I will stop recording. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Another huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Next week, I'll be speaking with Krishana Sankar, a recent PhD graduate of the University of Toronto and creator of the online graduate community, Grad Write Slack. Until then, stay in school.